There are few women in the world who understand Donald Trump better than his niece, Mary Trump, and his longtime former aide, Barbara Ress. Both have written best-selling books with deep insights into the president's pathologies and his prejudices. Both have been attacked by the president and his allies. And as his presidency draws to a close, both sides have ideas about how Trump will handle his forced exit from the Oval Office over the next month and what he might do next. As President-elect Biden's victory is officially ratified by the Electoral College, we'll talk to Mary Trump and Barbara Rest together about what to expect in Trump's final days and beyond on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I, it's sort of uh, fitting that just as we did this interview with Mary Trump and Barbara Ress, the Electoral College formally voted and uh, made it clear, as we have known for some time, that Joe Biden won the election in November, and Donald Trump will be leaving office. It's not yet clear whether the president will accept what is reality here, but it's pretty clear he doesn't have much choice. Yeah, it is clear. I will say that for the first time, I think Joe Biden showed a little bit of, um, you know, some like forcefulness about this. Uh, All through this weird kind of interregnum between uh, the election and this transition period, Biden has been uh, very, very kind of low-key about it all. But I think he's finally sort of reached the end of the rope here and uh, wanted to make it clear that this thing is over. And he even talked about this Texas lawsuit, calling it a position so extreme we have never seen it before, a position that refused to respect the will of the people, refused to respect the rule of law. So I think it is over, and I think Joe Biden wanted to say that with an exclamation point. And he did. It's clearly that—I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the continued noise from the Trump crowd about the stolen election and the continued tweets from the president and the comments from— Kaylee McInerney and uh, and the rest of his uh, minions. Uh, it's it's clear that's having an impact. It's getting under the skin of not just Joe Biden, but I'm sure uh, his top aides, and they felt the need to like just speak out forcefully and say enough of this nonsense. Right, because at the end of the day, it, it is damaging. You know, and, and yeah. at the end of the day, it is important for the president-elect to assert himself. And to say, you know, enough with this childish behavior, it's time to move on. So that's what's happening. Well, the question remains as to what or how Donald Trump will move on from this key moment facing a 
clear defeat for his reelection and the the clear fact that he will be leaving office. And we've got two uh, great people to talk about it, two women who know Donald Trump in ways that few others do. So let's get to it. with us Mary Trump, the niece of President Donald Trump and the author of Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man, and Barbara Ress, a former executive vice president of the Trump Organization and author of Tower of Lies, What My 18 Years of Working with Donald Trump Reveals About Him. Mary and Barbara, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be here. Thanks. So we are at a um, historic day. The Electoral College is meeting as we speak and will elect Joe Biden as the next president of the United States, meaning that Donald Trump will be forced to leave the White House on January 20. That's still more than a month away. And as we all know, the president has refused to accept that he lost this election. And he's got more time left in office, leaving a lot of us to wonder what he's going to do with his remaining time. And we'd like to get your insights. Mary, why don't you go first? We really cannot underestimate what Donald's capable of doing in the next 36 days, I think. Which, by the way, is just another flaw in the system that's been revealed. It's way too long between Election Day and the inauguration. Because 79 days, you can do a lot of damage, but you can also do a lot of damage in... um, 35. Well, at least it's not the four months that it used to be when uh, Hoover was president. So it's we've made some improvement, but you're right. Yeah. We may need to narrow that window a little more. Yeah, I think 24 hours is good. Um, <laughs> but, you know, because um, I think I think the coming month will be more dangerous because Donald has been busy in the last two months with these frivolous lawsuits and running around claiming that the election was stolen and, you know, sowing division and ramping up his followers. But now that it looks like that between the Supreme Court, the what is he's one for 59 in courts and the Electoral College voting today, giving Biden the decisive win, um, he's going to have more time to turn his thoughts to breaking stuff on the way out and also plotting his next move in terms of avoiding accountability once he's no longer protected by the power of the Oval Office. So I think this this is where the ride gets even scarier. Barbara, you worked for him for many years. What are you expecting over the next month? Well, certainly, so? I, I agree with Mary. I mean, you know, he is going to cause more damage. There's no question about it. He, he is going to do whatever he can to make it harder for Biden to take over and, and become a good president. He's trying to ruin Biden before he even starts. But the thing with the, um, the, the um, supporters, he's raising money from these people and he's got $200 million. So, I mean, you know, I think he, he likes the idea that he's just going to keep pulling that uh, up, making it bigger. And, you know, the way to do it is what he's doing, just incite them. 
it's terrifying. I, I, I saw the uh, pictures of those, uh, those uh, people in Washington, and I just, I was horrified by it. I, this is my country. It's terrifying. And, you know, someone asked me, do I think that he would stop if he thought it was going to cause damage? No, he wouldn't. He's encouraging it. So I, I think that's the kind of thing he's going to be doing over the next few days. I also think that he and his legal team, most of his legal team, are going to do some heavy-duty evaluating of the cases that they have against him in New York. Mary, you're a trained clinical psychologist. I hear what, what Barbara said, that uh, as he contests this election fraudulently, <laughs> he's raising a lot of money. That may be part of his motivation. But he also seems to have a pathological inability to admit losing. So not only are you a trained clinical psychologist, but you grew up with Donald Trump. You spent a lot of time in, in the home that he grew up with. Give us your insights into why it is so difficult, actually seemingly impossible, to acknowledge losing. It is impossible. Uh, it starts with... as pretty much everything does with Donald, <laughs> with my grandfather. Essentially, in my family, my grandfather's was the only opinion that mattered. His rules were the only ones that needed to be followed. And his worldview was the only one that needed to um, be embraced. And if you failed to do any of those things, you were essentially cut out in one way or another. So from a really young age, Donald learned that the worst thing you could be was weak and the worst thing you could do was lose. You know, he saw what happened to my dad when, when he wasn't able to be of use to my grandfather. And he was determined always to be the winner Fred Trump required him to be. What's interesting though, is that Donald has never won anything legitimately in his life. However, since the only thing that mattered was the win, not the process, it was perfectly okay to cheat, lie, and steal, use other people's money, use other people's connections, use other people's power. He's, for the first time in his life, in a situation in which he cannot squirm his way out of this loss. It's the biggest loss he's ever suffered. It's incontrovertible. There's literally nothing he can do about it. And the consequences of this loss, particularly because he may very well be staring down the barrel of lawsuits, um, bankruptcy and criminal indictments, um, the consequences are absolutely terrifying to him. So he's going to do everything in his power from both psychological and emotional perspectives and also from pragmatic ones to turn this into another win, which he can't do. Yeah, Barbara, let me, I just want to get Barbara's view on this just quickly. You worked for him when in a sense, he was at the top of his game. So maybe he wasn't losing a lot. But did you see evidence of the kind of, of this kind of sort of fragility? I mean, was it something that uh, was part of his, that, that was openly part of his psychological makeup at the time? Unquestionably, because not only could he not lose, he couldn't be wrong. So anything that he said that, that was stupid, ridiculous, and, and, he would never come back and say, oh, I was wrong about that. So the way that you got him to agree to make a change was to convince him that it was his idea to make the change. And, and there's a classic example. We had a big, big, big project on the west side of New York called the Trump City. 
and it was going to have uh, 14 million square feet of retail housing, uh, office, uh, that everything, uh, hotel. And uh, he was at the uh, at the city planning commission for three or four years with this project, and it was going nowhere. And uh, I was in charge of the project. I had just taken over for someone who had left. And I was going to get uh, union people to march on City Hall and, you know, do, do the whole legal thing stuff. And uh, he learned from a very close friend that there was no way he was ever getting the budget approved. The opposition was so strong and so rich that they were going to stop him. They were so connected in City Hall, he was not going to get this approved. So uh, they, they came to us with a, with a plan. And um, it was very, very different from what we were planning. It was, you know, you've seen it probably on the west side of New York. It's just, you know, little buildings. And uh, they said, this is what we want. This is what we'll agree to. So they opened negotiations. And Donald said, well, no, I want 13 million square feet. And, and they said, no. And he then gave them what they asked for, which was something like 8 million square feet. He totally capitulated. Said, Even the lawyers were surprised. He didn't fight back. And in the end... They ended up with this plan. Well, you know, here's what Donald did with it. He said, I got this idea and I realized that what I was doing probably wasn't the best thing for the city. So I designed this project and I called it Riverside South. And it was a way of me giving back. I'm building something wonderful and I'm giving back to the city. And he made himself into a hero. He managed to make himself into a hero. And that is what Trump does. That is exactly what he, he never, he doesn't lose, he doesn't admit he's wrong. But now he's beside himself because he put all these things into play to make him win, fooling around with the vote. And then here he's got the Supreme Court. I think he was probably very disappointed that the Supreme Court didn't go his way on that. I think, I he, think he's made that clear. Yeah, I think <laughs> he, you know he was disappointed he posted, in the people he appointed who did know, not but, stand by you know, him. The question you have to ask is, well, does he really think he won? Uh, no, he knows he lost. Oh, I believe that anyway. I don't know what Mary would say. But did he think the Supreme Court could undo it? I think he thought he, I think he thought it could. Barbara, uh, Dan mentioned you were with him for the when he was at the top of his game, but it wasn't such a great game back then either. He had repeated bankruptcies for those Atlantic City casinos when you were uh, uh, working for him. Did he accept the fact that he had gone bankrupt and that his casinos were run into the ground? Or how, how did he process those very big setbacks? I can't say in public what he, what he said about why his casinos failed. But it had to do with him being distracted by being involved with other women. And so that was why the casinos, he, he, he kept his eye, took his eye. I think he can use that excuse for losing the election? Or, uh... no, well, I don't think so, no. But he yeah. took his eye off the ball. And then he had two people, two executives, a wonderful guy named Marvin uh, Freeman, who was brilliant, and his brother. And he just dumped everything on them. And he had a couple of executives that had died in a helicopter crash not long before, and he dumped it on them. So he laid off all the blame for the casinos and everything for the casinos on those people. And when he was asked about that, he turned around and he said, I didn't lose any money. I pulled my money out. The casinos went under. I mean, that's just business. I know how to use the law. I, I, I'm brilliant. 
brilliant in that and going bankrupt. That was a great idea. And that's what he did. And you know, those people, some people would believe him, some people wouldn't believe him, but he was clearly saying that I did the right thing. I salvaged what we could out of these casinos that my brother and company ruined because I was off with women and not watching what was going on with the company. Mary, I just want to uh, turn back to your profile of Donald Trump in the book, because we journalists and a lot of other people have spent a lot of time trying to put him on the couch and trying to understand him. And I think in your book, you take us all to task a little bit because we've been a little reductive uh, about everything that's going on inside his his mind, heart. But you say in the book, and I, I want to get to the, the patriarch of the family a little bit, and also your father, Freddie Trump. You say in the book, uh, Donald, following the lead of my grandfather and with the complicity, silence, and inaction of his siblings, destroyed my father. I can't let him destroy my country. So just talk a little bit about what Fred Trump did to your father and how Donald Trump came to be complicit in, in that. You know, every once in a while I have something read back to me from my book and it's like, wow, that sounds arrogant. I didn't mean it to, <laughs> I didn't mean it that way, but I just meant I need to do what I can. And to be fair, it's not all journalists. And I also have the uh, dubious advantage of having known Donald forever. But as for my grandfather, he was a straight up sociopath. Um, he cared about nothing other than his business and its success and money. And he set up not just, not just his empire, so to speak, but his family as a zero sum game. And that's where, you know, the whole winning at all costs thing comes from. He needed his successor who, of course, because it was the fifties was going to be his oldest son and namesake, my dad, Freddie. I don't honestly know when it happened, but at some point as my dad, who's seven and a half years older than Donald, was growing up and reaching the time when, you know, he was gonna prepare to be, to join my grandfather's company, my grandfather realized that Freddie was not the kind of successor he wanted. You know, I can say for sure what it was, but my dad was a kind person. He was a generous person. He was funny. Uh, he had interests outside of real estate, which was a sin. You know, he loved boating and flying. And yet he had every intention of succeeding his father in business. He got a business degree from Lehigh, joined the company immediately, but they clashed from the very beginning. My grandfather never delegated any responsibility to my dad. He was sort of tasked with these menial, uh, meaningless jobs. And when my father tried to take some control of, of a particular project, my grandfather humiliated him in front of the entire office. And these were the people who were, you know, presumably going to be my dad's employees someday. So in what I think must have been the greatest act of courage in my father's life, he quit. And he applied to become a professional pilot for TWA at the dawn of the jet age. And he got accepted in his first try into the, the first class training class in 1964. That's when I think Donald saw an opening and over the years, he and, and, and my grandfather had become, become well, I, I don't want to say close, but more in sync, I think is a better way of putting it. And yet, my grandfather still felt the need to punish my father 
for having failed to meet expectations, even though my grandfather never would have let him succeed. And he essentially pushed my dad to the edge. It was when he was working for TWA, which by the way, was the pinnacle of his life at the age of 25, to uh, give up because unfortunately, my grandfather's was still the only opinion that mattered. His drinking became out of control and he had to resign from flying, go back to work in Brooklyn at Avenue Z. And at that point, Donald joined the company, right? Well, a couple of years later, Donald joined the company. My dad knew it was a dead end for him. And two years later, my grandfather made Donald the president of Trump management, leapfrogging over Freddie, who never had a chance and would never, ever be redeemed. And it was just a totally, it was an act of such abject cruelty that it's hard to believe that my grandfather actually got even crueler as my dad disintegrated over the next 10 years. And what was uh, Donald's um, relationship with your dad and how did he treat your father, especially when he was going through his troubles with alcoholism? Well, again, you know, Donald saw my father's descent as an opportunity. And he was going to exploit that opportunity at all costs. He was never going to do anything to give my father an advantage uh, for fear of, you know, Donald's getting displaced, no matter how unlikely that was. So as, as my dad uh, got worse pretty precipitously, I mean, he needed open heart surgery by the time he was 39, Donald treated him the way he pretty much treated everybody else, dismissively, with condescension, with contempt. And, you know, because my grandfather had very solidly instilled in all of us the myth that Donald was some brilliant self-made, like I legitimately thought that Donald was the one who'd made all the money and made all the deals, you know? So we were all duped by this, but you know, my, they'd never been close. They were almost eight years apart in age. And, um, you know, my, uh, Donald just ignored him towards the end. Uh, and when they did interact, Donald made it very clear that he was the superior in the relationship. Did he ever express any remorse later in life, Donald Trump? Not sincerely, you know, yeah. um, because if he had been remorseful, people would know more about my dad. But if you asked two years ago, before I published the book, if you'd asked anybody what they thought of uh, Donald's older brother, Freddie, they either would have said, who? Donald has an older brother? Or they would have said, oh yeah, yeah, he's the loser alcoholic. So Donald only brings up my father in the context of his alcoholism and has never told anybody who he really was. So I don't, any, any superficial expressions of remorse are completely meaningless in my view. Barbara, have you ever heard Donald Trump express remorse about anything? No. 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 <laughs> no. One word answer. No, I, uh, no, no regrets. <laughs> I, I, he, he'll say that he regrets hiring apps or he regrets buying more. Right. You know, that, that, those are meaningless things. As far as, you know, real remorse. No, because, it, again, remorse is an admission that you did something wrong. Barbara, I want to ask you... Uh, about something in his life story that seems that's a little paradoxical, and that is his attitude toward and treatment of women. On the one hand, you know, we all know the stories, the allegations of uh, sexual assault and publicly demeaning women and 
talking about calling them ugly and fat and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, he did give a lot of opportunities to women in your business, construction, uh, that women didn't have. I don't know about that. I mean, to correct you, but I don't know of any other. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is actually, I, I just reread a story that Yahoo News wrote back in 2016 in which you were interviewed. And, and he hired you and he made you, uh, you, eventually you rose to be a vice president. And, and uh, No, you, he hired me as a vice president. Or you hired you as a vice president and, and gave you a very large project, I think, building a uh, Trump building on Fifth Avenue. Absolutely. So, yeah. And the quote from, uh, this is what you said in, in our story, you said, pointing out that you were not going to vote for him, you were going to vote for Hillary Clinton. You said, yes, he's a megalomaniac, and I don't see how any woman can support him because of the way he talks about women in public. And then you go on to say, but he wasn't like that to the people who worked for him, not his top people. Go figure. Right. So how do you explain that seeming contradiction? Well, actually... I think he prefers to work with women. I think he would like to have very strong women work for him. And you take, and, and preferably women that are not liked, women that are bitches. That's what he wants. And the classic example is Omarosa. When he hired me, he told me men are better than women. He said, men are better than women at business. It might have been at this business, I don't know. But a good woman, is better than 10 men, 10 good men. And he then paid me the ultimate compliment, which I didn't know at the time was the ultimate compliment that, that he or his father could pay anyone. That was, he called me a killer. And that's what he <laughs> wanted. And he got the combination of killer women and the fact that they were women, he always knew that he was better than them. He never had to, there was no competition. No woman could compete with him because he was better than all women. Now that was in a time when he didn't think he was better than all people. Now he thinks he's better than everyone in the whole world. But so he liked having women and, and very strong women do his bidding for him. And he did, he had some real killers. I, I don't know if I'm a killer, but I've been called that by contractors, but um, that's the way he, he liked to go. But he doesn't have women working in construction. He doesn't, um, not, I, I don't know that he does any construction anymore, but I, I would be very doubtful if there was one single woman engineer that was employed in any of his companies after I left. Uh, and as far as him giving me an opportunity, you know, I, I downplayed, I didn't go after Donald, Beginning. I just want Hillary to win. And uh, I, I said, yeah, it gave me a great break. Well, well, it was a great break, but you have to understand I was on the path to a vice presidency in my general contracting firm. And I, I would have probably done better overall in life if I had taken that path. But he, he offered me some talent. And it's understandable that that was what, what to do. But he picked me. He picked me out of a whole bunch of people. He could have hired somebody else. I wasn't the top person on the team. I was, you know, mechanical superintendent. And uh, he did that because he saw in me this killer instinct. And that's what he wanted. And when it comes to that, it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, and maybe even, maybe even, doesn't matter if you're a minority. And I say maybe because that, that, that is a big thing to him. It's hard for him to believe that minorities are as good as white people. But um, that's, that's why. I mean, he, he didn't look at me as a woman. He never treated me like a woman. It was always, um, you know, one of his people.
Mary, you write at uh, great length in your book about uh, just how dysfunctional the Trump family is, and you have you know very telling details about the clashes within the family, which were supported in part by the secret tapes you made of Marianne Barry, the sister of Donald Trump, your aunt, who was um, uh, for many years a federal appellate court judge in uh, the Third Circuit in Philadelphia. We've got one of the clips from those secret tapes. Mark, you want to play that? Now? Goddamn tweet and the lie. Oh my God, I'm talking too freely, but you know, it, it, the change of stories, the lack of preparation, the lying, the holy. <laughs> but he's appealing to the base, what they're doing with the kids at the border. So this is. This is your aunt, the president's sister, talking about what a liar he, her brother, is. So I, there's so many questions one has about this. First, about how Marianne Barry has reacted to the disclosure of these tapes, how you came to make, how and why you came to make them, and how you feel about secretly taping your aunt and then using it to promote this book. Yeah, all good questions. Um, I'll start with the last one first. I had no intention of releasing them publicly. I was taking taping them for personal reasons. Um, in the course, and this is going to sound weird, but families are weird. I had become close with her, with my aunt. Um, we enjoyed each other's company. I would visit her. We would spend four hours together. But in the course of those conversations, I had learned some things about some crimes they had committed against me. <laughs> so um, I essentially, the main thing- And you're thing talking heard, about basically cheating you yeah. out of your portion of your grandfather's estate. Yes, and I had right. learned in conversation with her that she had lied in her deposition 20 years earlier. And that made me wonder what else might she might reveal. And there was some other stuff going on. I wasn't particularly thrilled with how she was treating certain other people in my family. And um, I just, and I knew, you know, how vicious they could be and vindictive. And I was just protecting myself. And again, had no intention of making these tapes public. I made them public when I realized that if we had any chance of getting Donald out of the Oval Office, everything needed, we needed to use every weapon at our disposal. And I realized that, you know, if I was going to walk the walk, I needed to do that too. And that meant revealing the tapes publicly. I hated doing it. I completely uh, would understand why other people would think badly of me for having done so. It, I never, yeah, I felt awful about it despite the fact that Marianne was actually, has been quite horrible to me. But again, I needed to do what I could do. And if it was going to help even a little bit, I was willing to take the heat for what I'd done. I take it you have not heard from your aunt since these tapes have been made public. Well, to tell you the truth, uh, and I don't know why, she stopped speaking to me about, well, well, well before the book came out. So her, maybe, her... maybe she suspected that you were secretly taping her. Oh, no, no. Mm -mm. Def it's definitely it has nothing to do with that. There's no way she would have known. 
And I, you know, I had conversations with her after my last meeting with her. And it, it just, it had nothing to do with any of that because if she had suspected, I, I would have known about it well before the book came out or well before I, the, I released the tapes. One of the things that we want to ask both of you is uh, we, we talked about what Donald Trump may still do in the remaining uh, weeks that he has in office, but we want to ask you about what he'll do once he leaves office and the impact that, that he uh, could still have. But I want to just, Mary, ask you very quickly, um, you could have written this book, well, you could have written this book when he was running for president. I assume you didn't think he was going to win at the time. But why Why did you wait to, to write it when you did? What, and what was the turning point for you? When and why did you feel you had to write the book when you did or publish it when you did? I mean, it's not that, it's not that I, I came to feel I had to. I, I always knew he was going to be terrible. And I would have done anything in my power before the election uh, to do something. But first of all, you're right. I did never occur to me he was going to win. And when he, well, not that he did, but when he- In fact, you were expecting to go to Hillary Clinton's victory party, right? Oh, no. I mean, I wasn't going to be invited to that, certainly. But um, I didn't go to Donald's because it would have felt rude, because I would have stood there so happy that he lost. (laughs) My bad. Um, So the reason I didn't come out in 2016 was because I didn't have anything. I had nothing concrete. It literally would have been my word against his. He was getting away with everything. They easily could have pegged me as this disgruntled, disinherited niece. So the turning point wasn't anything he'd done because he, I believed that he never should have been allowed anywhere near the Oval Office. It was that Suzanne Craig, the extraordinary investigative reporter for the New York Times came to my door and reminded, or not even reminded me because I didn't even know, told me, convinced me that I had in my possession important documents that could prove, or in her words, rewrite the financial history of the Trump family. And it wasn't until then that I felt like I had any power because like a lot of people in my family, I have, you know, this learned helplessness. So I needed something concrete before I felt like anybody would listen to anything I had to say. So what was it that you had that was concrete? I'm sorry, I missed that part. I had in my possession 40,000 pages of documents from the lawsuit that I had brought against my grandfather's estate in 1999 after learning that I had been completely disinherited. And these documents were his personal tax returns, the tax tax returns for every single property he owned, which was in excess of four dozen, um, wills, uh, my grandmother's financials, uh, my grandfather's checking uh, account records, everything. Wait, just to be clear, you had Donald Trump's personal tax returns? Nope, my grandfather's. Your grandfather's personal tax returns. Yeah, I wish I had had Donald's. So this actually does get to a question Danny was about to ask, which is what's going to what's going to be Trump's future post leaving the office. And one thing we know about is he's under he and the Trump organization are under investigation by the New York District Attorney's Office. Have either of you been contacted by the district attorney's office as part of their investigation? Barbara, you go first. You see me smiling. Someone called me. I'm not sure which office he was from. Uh, and I just said, I don't know anything, which is honest. Wait, you've said what? 
I don't know anything about Trump's finances or anything like that. I knew how, you, you know, were executive vice president of the Trump organization. You must have known something yeah. about the finances of the Trump organization. No, I really didn't. You know, I really didn't. I was all about construction and development. That's what I did. Well, the yeah. core allegation by Michael Cohen, who I assume you know pretty well, is that now. the Trump organization routinely inflated the value of its assets or devalued them for tax purposes to minimize its uh, its tax exposure? I don't doubt that for a second, but I, you know, I really had nothing to do with that. I didn't evaluate properties for insurance purposes or anything like that. I had nothing to do with evaluating. What I did was was get plans approved and build them. That was my job. Right. And I, I think it was uh, Cohen's allegation is uh, it devalued them uh, for the purposes of taxes, but overvalued them for the purposes well, of, yeah. uh, and that, that making, makes... of getting loans from banks that otherwise they would not have been entitled to. Mary, how about you? Have you been contacted by the DA? Um, I haven't. I don't have anything beyond the, uh, what I handed over to the New York Times, because if I had more, I would have handed it over to the New York Times. Also, there are people who could have given the same documents that I have. I don't know how useful they are anyway, because I think what the the article did the job of establishing a pattern of behavior, and other people certainly have much more material evidence uh, to support that those patterns of behavior continued into probably the present than I do. So, uh, no, have not been contacted. So I guess, uh, what do you expect, um, both of you? Uh, do you think that the DA has got sufficient evidence to bring criminal charges against Donald Trump and the Trump Organization, Barbara? I don't know. I, I don't know what they have. I mean, I, I'd love to. I hope that they have it. I really do. I, I, but you know, I said this the other day. Uh, Trump gets out of things like nobody I've ever seen. He's like, we used to say among my crew, the people that worked for me, that he had to deal with the devil because he always got out of things. Problems came and they went and he came out unscathed. Now here, I mean, you know, I think that he should be, from what I hear, and that's only what I hear, uh, he should be uh, charged and died and found guilty. That's from, from what I hear and what I, I see in times of, you know, hearsay. But, um, you know, I remember that his kids, I think Ivanka in particular, was, was being investigated for something. And it just disappeared. It went into the ether like it never happened. So I don't know what's going to happen with him. I just will tell you this. I think if he believes on December 21st or so, or December 29th, that he's going to go to jail, he'll leave the country. He will not go to jail. Go where? So I mean, you know, I don't know how he could be convinced of that to the point. I guess, where, I, guess I guess Russia, right? Yeah, where, where Moscow. Would he, where would he go? <laughs> Get an apartment he, next he could, to Edward Snowden. Yeah, I was right. going to say he could move in together. He could pardon Snowden, and then they could move in together. Yeah, the Arabs. So go with the Arabs. A beautiful country over there, and uh, and he's lots of things. I don't want to take away from Anderson, but I, there are lots of things he can do, and I don't think that he'll lose his base for sure. But I, I, you talk. Mary, do you think he'll be uh, indicted? You know, there's no there's no way to know for sure. I I think uh, Letitia James is uh, very different from Cyrus Vance. I think Cyrus Vance also has uh, a lot to make up for, so that might give him a little incentive. I also think that uh, Donald's just despicable behavior, well, in general, but specifically since the election. I mean, this is a man he's con 
he's he's committing sedition against our country every single day. It's increasing the urgency of holding him accountable, and especially if nothing happens at the federal level, which in my view would be a travesty. I think there's going to be more pressure on the states uh, to follow whatever leads that they already have. Um, but there's also more to it than that. Donald is looking at at least three lawsuits, one of which I'm, I'm bringing for fraud and one of which is E. Jean Carroll's a defamation case, both of which are proceeding through the courts. And he's also looking at in excess of a billion dollars in debt coming due. And once he's no longer uh, has afforded the protection of his office, there's really little uh, reason to think the banks are going to find him worth hanging on to as a debtor. So. There's going to be a lot that he's going to be defending against, uh, which is awesome. But my hope is that, you know, he's held accountable legally because that, to me, what he's gotten away with, particularly in the last four years, is it's horrifying. So and, what do you th- what do you think he's going to do post presidency? Um, I'm not as uh, I'm not I, I'm not entirely sure about leaving the country. But you know, Barbara might have greater insight into that oh, than only I. Only if he knows. Only if he knows he's going yeah. to. But but that I think that's the question. Who's going to convince him of that? I don't you know. know. Right? Because he's not listening to anybody right he's now, except absolutely. Yes. Right? Totally not listening. Yeah, and and I mean, he keeps making these ridiculous uh, moves, and I'm sure there are people telling him not to do some of the worst things he's doing. But he's not listening to anybody because he's in a panic and he's desperate. And he believes always that he knows best. It's his gut that is the only thing we should listen to, right? Well, so- what, Mary, Mary, what about um, what kind of a role do you think he'll play in politics? Uh, because he's already musing about running for president again in 2024. There's an argument that that, that could be made that it would, you know, maybe help his legal situation if he maintains that public profile and and dangles the idea that he may be running for president it could insulate him a little bit and beyond that i guess i, I guess the question is if he does that is he going to continue to play nice with the republican party or is he going to uh kind of strike out on on his own and run as an independent what do you think his political future holds yeah oh, it's a really complicated situation but what i will say there's no way he's running legitimately running for president in 2024. It's Why do you say that? Because he that would require his being, you know, at, set, play a supporting role for four years. It would require his being competent. You know, this is a man who's, he may be younger than Joe Biden, but he's not aging well. He's very unhealthy, both physically and psychologically. That's only going to deteriorate over time. I do not see that happening. However, it's a good device, one, to get the people he's scamming to keep throwing money at him, as Barbara said earlier, and two, to continue to be relevant. And what happens beyond that is very much, not entirely, but very much down to what Republican leadership does. If they no longer think that he's necessary or viable, then they will ditch him in a second because I don't think they want him around any more than the rest of us do for different reasons, of course. However, if they think that he's gonna continue to be leading the party from from outside, they're gonna continue to do his bidding. I mean, we, as I said earlier, we saw what happened to Brian Kemp. 
his sycophancy didn't really do him much good, did it? So we're going to see Republicans continuing to debase themselves, their party and our country. But again, I think we need to see what happens on January 5th. Like that, I think that's going to determine a lot about what Mitch McConnell does for sure. What about both of you? What about his 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 kind of stranglehold on the base of the Republican Party? What accounts for that in your views? And do you think that also begins to dissipate once he leaves office? I think he's going to hold on to those people. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, he came out in 2016 and uh, won the election. And by 2017, everyone that, that voted for him believed that the, all the bad things they do, the racism, the sexism, the xenophobia, that was, that was good. all right. It was okay. He made it all okay. And those people adore him. They, he, they will walk on water. They will walk through fire for him. And, and he's holding on to them. Now, he's got those people. And with those people, he has a lot of control over the Republican Party. Because you take a senator that might be up in two years for a, a re-election, and he's got a primary to face. Trump can ruin him. He can ruin him by, by just supporting, having his minions support that primary candidate. So that's one of the reasons why they're all beholden to Trump, because they're afraid of what he's going to do. But if I were Trump, this is what I would do with, with, with 40 million people, uh, or even if it's 20, I would start some kind of a media company. And I don't think he needs banks to lend him money. I think all these crooked oligarchs all over the world will come running to him. I mean, and he'll build more Trump towers because there are people that value him. People that value what he does in this country and outside of the country. As evil as he gets, he becomes more valued by so many people. So I see Trump TV, Trump uh, Magazine, Trump Radio, or Trump on the Internet. I really just see a possibility of that. And he's maybe he'll, maybe he'll start a rival podcast, Isakoff. Yeah, right. The real skullduggery. Watch out, guys. Podcast. At the end of the yeah. day, this is all going to be about money. It's going to yeah. be about well, it'll be really interesting to see whether he can generate the kind of funds that he did before. I, I take your point. I, I don't think most banks are going to uh, no. lend him money, but I take your point about uh, wealthy oligarchs uh, from overseas who have already uh, forged relationships with Trump and have benefited from uh, their relationship with Donald Trump throughout his presidency. Well, any uh, final thoughts a year from now? Uh, I want you to look into your respective crystal balls and uh, tell us uh, what you think Donald Trump will be doing and what we'll be thinking about Donald Trump a year from now. Mary, you go first. Um, I mean, first of all, we, we cannot discount what is probably very likely going on behind the scenes right now. This is a desperate man who owes tons of money, who has access to our most closely guided secrets. That's terrifying, a terrifying prospect. Where we are a year from now depends entirely on whether or not this criminal, this seditionist is held accountable. It really does. I mean, he should not have the luxury of time to start a media company, although I do agree that's the direction he would go in, but he shouldn't be able to. Now, what? where we're gonna be in a year, 
because it depends on so many other things, I'm not really sure. My hope is that we never have to talk about him again, but I think that's incredibly naive. <laughs> so hopefully we'll be talking about him as somebody who's been indicted or convicted. Well, Mary, uh, you don't want people to stop talking about him because you're writing another book about Donald Trump. So you want him to oh, still no, be I, I, in the, in no, the news the book is in not some about, way. The book's no? not about him. Um, oh, okay. I mean, he, he's, I, I, he can't be ignored because he's a big part of what's going on. Right. And honestly, I mean, my publisher would probably kill me for saying this, but um, I'm much more concerned about having him no longer be part of the conversation or no longer have relevance, no longer have power than I am about, you know, I can't, my publisher's selling books. I, seriously, I, he's so dangerous that that's much, that's much more pressing than anything okay. else. Barbara, a year from now? Well, you know, I, I, do, <laughs> I hate to keep going back to it, but, you know, you can build anything from your kitchen right now, and everybody knows that. He could be out of the country, and you can still you know, build Trump towers all over the place. He sits in New York, he does it. He can sit in uh, Dubai and do it. So I, I don't think that, the, that he, if he does leave the country, I don't think that that will stymie his ability to do certain developments. Now, if he does, and I'm not saying he will, but if he does have a media company, and I hope he doesn't, he will sow so much uh, dissonance and so much hatred and anger. He will keep us in the situation we're in. Can Biden overcome that? I don't know. I don't know. I pray that he can. I would like Mary, like to see him become irrelevant. I would like to see people stop covering him for crying out loud. We don't care what you do, Donald. Go off and do whatever you want. But, you know, I, that's never going to happen. So I've got one last question for Mary. And instead of looking forward, I want you to look backwards to mm -hmm. a kind of rosebud moment in uh, Donald Trump's earliest days that involved your dad, Freddie, at a dinner, I guess, I guess at, uh, at their uh, family home. And he, uh, your father dumped a bowl of mashed potatoes on young Donald Trump's head. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a cute story and a story that uh, was told from time to time within the family. But that was a uh, Donald Trump's first uh, experience with real humiliation. It, it was indeed. And, you know, part of it was that, you know, he was still really young. He's probably seven-ish. And my dad was 14-ish. Uh, but Donald had already established himself who was going to get away with everything. And for a brief moment, he was stopped in his tracks by somebody I think he was already beginning to suspect was unworthy in my grandfather's eyes. So it increased that sense of humiliation. And what's also interesting, because that story was retold, I thought initially, as a way to bring my dad back. You know, he died when I was 16. And Marianne is always the one who brought that story up. but. In retrospect, I think it was her way of checking Donald and making him feel that humiliation again because he always reacted the same way. Crossed his arms, put his head down, and scowled. Or pouted, depending on how unkind you want to be about it. He never got over it. He never processed it. And that is so much of what's driven him. I mean, I don't want to be reductive, but... Barack Obama's treatment of him at that White House Correspondents' Dinner all those years ago cannot be um, dismissed as some meaningless event. It was a catalyst for something. So, you know, he'll do anything to change the subject away from humiliation. Barbara's right. 
sewing division is is a really good way to do that and he's going to keep doing it as long as we let him so from getting dumped with mashed potatoes on your head to being dumped with electoral college votes for <laughs> Joe Biden on your head, the arc of Donald Trump's career. Mary and Barbara, thanks for joining us and uh, sharing your insights. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. It's a pleasure. Fascinating discussion. Thank you.